Tonight is 2 Samuel chapter 14. 2 Samuel chapter 14. Um, one of the things that I'm glad for in studying through 1 and 2 Samuel again is uh, I'm learning a great deal, and I hope you are as well. Uh, I have never understood this chapter. I hope I have a better understanding of it now. Um, you can search the scriptures and see if these things are so. I think there are some subtle things under the surface here in this chapter that it's teaching, so it's not obvious at first reading what this chapter is about or why it's here, which is uh, something you want to ask when you're reading your Bible, uh, especially these, these historical sections. Why is this here? Why is this included in inspired scripture? What was God's purpose in, in having these events uh, recorded? Why preserve these facts? Well, let me give you a bit of the background. The background here at the heart is the, the, the account of Absalom. Absalom murdered his brother and then fled and went into exile. And that's where we find him at this point. And, and essentially what these chapters are doing is it's tracing how Absalom, who's one of David's sons, is going to essentially come to the throne and usurp David's power. And, and you think about it, this guy, he murdered his brother he went into exile, and he is essentially going to unseat David. And again, the Philistines couldn't defeat David. The Syrians couldn't defeat David. But his own son is going to unseat him. And, and this account fits in with how that takes place. And I, and I think one of the, the, the things we see or, and we're supposed to learn from this is David's passivity. While so much of this is going on, it's an indictment on David and a warning to us uh, about the danger of passivity and of course it's in the context of David's sin. These are consequences for the sin David has committed. But let's begin 2 Samuel chapter 14 with all of that in the background. This is an unusual chapter. 2 Samuel chapter 14, the scripture says, Now Joab, the son of Zeruah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. And what we begin with here is essentially Joab manipulating David. There's a lot of manipulation in this chapter. And it begins with Joab manipulating David. And really the, the connection here with Joab is hard to discern. All you've got to go on is verse 1. Joab, the son of Zeruah, who incidentally is himself a murderer, knew the king's heart, went out to Absalom. So, so it appears that Joab is being painted as one who's motivated by pleasing the king. He sees there's a problem in King David's life. David's heart is broken because of Absalom. And we'll talk more about that why as we, we move through the passage. And Joab seemingly wants to help him. But the, the, the bottom line is uh, he goes about it using deception. He goes about it using deception. And, and there's a word here in verse 2 that should cause the reader some, some pause. Or really, it's an ominous parallel in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman. Now this word wise, go back to chapter 13 and verse 3. Chapter 13 and verse 3. 
But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, Joab's bro- David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. It's the same word. And essentially what you have in Jonadab is you have an evil counselor. You have a man who helps another man plot rape. And you see the same word being used of this woman from Tekoa. And, and I think this all plays in with manipulation. Joab is manipulating David to get Absalom back. Because obviously David is seemingly not himself. And we'll talk more about that again as we work through the text. But this is an, an ominous description of the woman as a wise woman. I think the better understanding here would be she's crafty, and you're going to see that played out in this text. And, and again, it's under pretense. Pretend to be a mourner. Pretend to be something you're not. Go to the king and manipulate him to get this done. See what happens. Look at, look at what she does in 4 through 7. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons. And they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant. And they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Now notice how this plays out. Here's a crafty woman. And essentially if you study the life of David, he has a soft spot for women. Some of it costs him. Uh, there's, there's obviously a, a, an honorable thing to be said for a man who's in leadership who is gracious to women. And look at what she says to him at first. Save me, O king. So a crafty woman comes to him. Save me, O king. How's he going to react to this? And then add to that, I'm a widow. If anyone is to be cared for under the law of the Old Testament, it's widows. Essentially, this is a real pulling at the heartstrings, is what's going on here. And then not only that, my husband's dead. Here's a woman in distress, a widow. And, and I had two sons, and one of them killed the other. And in this explanation, it could have been an accidental death. It certainly wasn't a premeditated murder. And, and now the clan has risen up, as the Old Testament tells them to, to, to seek the life of the brother, but obviously here David has executive authority, and she's appealing to him to stop this. Now, and again, you notice the parallel if you read chapters 13 and 14. What you see here is one son murders another, and what you have in chapter 13 is Absalom murdering Amnon, one son murdering the other. But again, from the very outset, these are very different. Absalom plots for two years to kill Amnon, and it's premeditated murder. Maybe not so in this case. This reads more like an accident. But the point being, one son kills another, and she wants to get this son spared. Look at how it continues to play out in verse 8. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. 
Now, essentially, she also brought up this, this issue of this is going to destroy the air. It's going to extinguish the coal of my husband. There's not going to be a remnant. So there's, there's all this weight pressing for David to, to make a decision for her son's life to be spared. And essentially, he says, go and I'll give orders and deal with it. But that's not good enough for her. She's going to get more specific in verse 9. And notice she essentially works through getting even more specific through this conversation beginning in verse 9. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house, let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Essentially she's saying there, well, you know, what if I go back and I I carry the word of the king and and they want to essentially accuse me of guilt. And David says, you send them to me. I'll deal with them. And then then it escalates again in verse 11. Then she said, please let the king invoke the Lord your God. Thus the avenger of blood kill no more and my son not be destroyed. He said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall the ground. Essentially, that's the highest oath you can take. As God is a living God, I will do everything in my power to make sure this doesn't happen. It's essentially an oath that, that he takes for this woman. Verse 12. The woman said, please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. He said, speak. And the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision... The king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid, and your servant thought... I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord the king will set me at rest for the lord, my lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. What a strange conversation. What a strange series of statements. Essentially, she begins by exposing David's inconsistency. Saying, okay, you're going to spare my son? Well, what about your son? This is a pretty bold move that she makes. And then notice what she goes to. And and this is going to tie into really what is at the heart of this account that I hope to bring out as we work through it. Look, Look at what is really at the heart of the account. Verse 14, we must all die. What is at issue here in the background is David as the king is required to carry out the justice God's word requires him to carry out, which would demand the life of his son Absalom. Absalom is a murderer, and it would be required upon David to bring justice upon him, just like it was required upon David to bring justice upon Amnon when he raped his sister, but he didn't do anything about it. And so this this crafty woman exposes David's inconsistency, 
And uh, essentially, her claim is that David is evil in allowing his son to remain banished. And that David's error is in not being merciful to Absalom. But I, I, I think what is really going on here is David's error is not in bringing justice upon Absalom. And I'll show that to you as we work through the passage. Now look at what she says. And, and this, is, this is really, I think, one of the most significant things to understand this paragraph rightly in verse 14. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life. Now that is a huge clue to show you what she is saying is false. That is a false statement. And you don't have to travel far from 2 Samuel to find out that this is false. Let me just show you. Look at 1 Samuel 2.25. Uh, these are the, the wicked sons of Eli. Um, the, 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 the evil sons of, of Eli the priest. This is 1 Samuel 2.25. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. And you say, well, why would God do that? These are, these are evil men leading God's people astray. Also look at 1 Chronicles 10.14, which is essentially tells the account of David and his family. Just One of the, the things that makes First and Second Chronicles different is it gives more of God's perspective on the events in history. First and Second Samuel is recording events. First and Second Chronicles is going to give you more of God's perspective or the, 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 the perspective from heaven on it. Look at this. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. This is, I believe, talking about Saul. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Now, now notice there, God's perspective on, on the death of Saul, the Lord put him to death. So this statement from this woman, when she says, God will not take away life, there's those examples, and there are many, many more, many, many more, that very clearly show God will take away life. What is happening here is this woman is using deception and craftiness to seek to manipulate the king, which is ultimately going to lead to Absalom coming back to the kingdom which is ultimately going to lead to Absalom usurping David from his throne. And it comes about through this kind of manipulation. And notice what she does. She invokes God in her manipulation and essentially misrepresents God, right? This is one way to get what you want. You invoke God. God wants me to do this. God told me to do this. This is God's will for my life. I mean, how do you argue with that? Well, if the scripture says something very clearly to the contrary, there's a problem with that. So just a few lessons before we move on. We should beware those who would manipulate us to go against the truth of God's word. And this is what people do. They try to get you to do what they want you to do. And we've got to beware, be wary of that and be careful about that, especially if it would lead us to contradict or do, do something or live in a way that would contradict the word of God. And that's exactly what you have here. David, I believe, in this text, knows his responsibility. And as we work through, I think I can flesh that out for you. And so you understand David is, a, is I think the text paints David essentially here as a broken man in a highly emotional state. What, what issue could be more emotional than having to bring a death sentence upon your own son? That's, a, that's about as severe and serious and 
heart-wrenching as it, it could possibly get. So what does the lady do? Well, she uses this gate of emotions to introduce falsehood. But friends, knowing the truth of God's Word protects us from that kind of manipulation. And the reality is oftentimes people go through the emotion gate to try to lead pe- manipulate people to disobey God's Word. People also try to invoke God in trying to manipulate others to disobey God. You see this in a, in a, in a, in a thousand different cases. And again, the most common in our day is that you know, God would want you to do this. Or, or even the, God told me this about you. Like the, 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 the young man comes up to the young woman, God told me you were going to marry me. Well, and she's like, well, funny, God didn't tell me that. <clears throat> but, but again, the, this, these, these claims and this misrepresenting of God is used to manipulate people. If you loved me, you would do this. If you really, care, if you really cared about me, you would do this. And friends, again, the problem is if it, would, if it would cause us to do something that was contrary clearly to the Word of God. Now, I admit, and I, and I think what you have here in this text is one of the, the most heart-wrenching moral di- dilemmas possible. This world is full of dilemmas, right? Life is not simple. <laughs> Life is full of complicated decisions. But there is, there is one thing that is not complicated, And it's found in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And I think it's incredibly helpful to look at this book. Ecclesiastes, you find Solomon wrestling through dilemmas of life and difficulties of life. It's a book about life under the sun and and essentially how difficult life is. And how Solomon comes to this conclusion where it seems like everything is just worthless. But look at at the, the last sentences of the book. I'm sorry, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, the end of the matter. Always been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. There's a lot of dilemmas. There's a lot of things I don't know about, a lot of things I don't understand, but I know I'm to obey God. And I know there's not an excuse to be made for clearly disobeying God. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or or evil. So, so, again, we deal with moral dilemmas. We get that. That's this life. But we also have the clear word of God. And we need to order our life according to what it clearly says. And if somebody tries to manipulate us to do something or believe something or act in a way that is contrary to what is clear in Scripture, we can't allow that to take place. I think that's what you have happening here. Let's keep reading. <clears throat> Notice what she says. At the, at, essentially, if you read this, did you notice how many times she calls him the king? And then she says, verse 17, The word of my lord the king will set me at rest, for, the lord, for my lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. I mean, have we just read 2 Samuel 11 and 12? You don't come to the conclusion, my goodness, David, you're so discerning in good and evil. Well, let's read on. What's going on with that? Look at verse 18. Then the king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, Let my lord, the king, speak. The king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord, the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord, the king, has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. 
It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant in order to change the course of things. Your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Now think about those statements. You're like the angel of God. You can discern evil from good. You're like the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. This is another form of manipulation. It's called flattery. Now there is a, there is a, a place for recognizing the honor of a king and giving deference to a king. It's like you give deference to, to people in the world, but I think this transcends that and it steps into the level, level of flattery. She praises his discernment and the reality is flattery goes hand in hand in manipulation. If you want to get somebody to do something, you're going to really talk them up. The scripture warns over and over against the dangers of flattery. Let's just look at what David says about this. Psalm 5. <laughs> Again, this is one of David's psalms. Look what he says. Uh, Psalm 5, 8 and 9. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. There is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. David's describing his enemies there. One of the things that characterizes them is flattery. So I love the story, The Spider and the Fly. In fact, I highly recommend it. It's like this old uh, 1800s cautionary tale. Um, I think it was probably written for the perspective of young girls to warn them. Uh, and essentially, it, it, it tells the story of the, the spider, which is a predator, and he beguiles the fly. Right? You've probably heard the opening line, step into my parlor, said the spider to the fly. And then essentially, the, the, the spider is saying how beautiful she is, saying all this stuff to her, just beguiling her. But he's a predator. And she's like, no, 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 I'm not going to go in. And she flies away, but then she comes back. He fly, essentially, the, the spider devours the fly. And, and, and it's, a, it's a cautionary tale with a moral. And here's the moral at the end. Unto an evil counselor... Close heart and ear and eye and take a lesson from this tale of the spider and the fly. And that's what we have here. You have a, a, a crafty counselor that uses flattery to manipulate the king of Israel. And it still goes on today, doesn't it? Beware flattery. Now, look at verses 25 to 27. I think... What are these verses here for? Look at what this says. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. What in the world does that have to do with anything? Those are the kind of questions you've got to ask. Well, what do we know about Absalom so far? Murderer, exile. How is this guy going to beat David? How is he going to get the throne? Well, here's how. 
In all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. Then it goes into detail. And look at Absalom. I mean, verse 26, he weighed the hair of his head. You know, women are known for having beautiful hair. And you see, you know, the, the women, when they, they cut their hair and, you know, it's, it's cool and great. We, it's right and good to praise a woman for his be- her beauty. Uh, here's a dude who, when he cuts his hair, he weighs it. And he has three sons and, and one daughter, and she's beautiful too. I mean, my goodness, right? From all outward appearances, this guy is blessed by God. What's the emphasis here? Uh, and the emphasis here, I think, is the point. Physical beauty, right? That's, that'll get you a pass in a lot of things in life. But the thing about Absalom is he's long on image and he's short on substance. He's high on looks, but he's short on conviction. I mean, if you read through First and Second Samuel, one of the things the author of the, these books is trying to do, and he, he, he has themes that play through both of the books, is do you remember another person who was presented as dashing? I mean, maybe another person who was presented as an emphasis on his looks, who also became king? Saul. It didn't turn out so well with Saul, did it? This is another Saul in the making. That's what these passages are about. That, that it says plenty about his phys- physical beauty, but what is missing in this description? Nothing about his faithfulness. He's just another Saul in the making. Nothing about his spirituality. It says a lot about his hair. It says nothing about his heart. And Solomon is going to warn to keep careful watch over your heart, for from it flow the issues of life. And I think one of the warnings here is not to value cosmetics over character. That's worldly thinking. Not to value cosmetics over character. I'm not saying that physical beauty is of no value or that it's unimportant. Uh, It's a blessing from God, and and physical beauty can and has been used for the glory of God. You think of Esther. Esther is elevated to a position because of her physical beauty, and she uses it for the glory of God. But here's the the way the people are valuing Absalom is the problem, and what they value about him. And essentially, why are people not calling for his head? Because the blood of Amnon, his own brother, is calling out from the ground. They're using the wrong criteria in judging him. They're looking at style over substance. It's charisma instead of character or conviction. And I mean, isn't this paragraph similar to the way the world thinks and the way the world views people? The way the world portrays people? Our culture is big on valuing vanity over virtue. This is a caution. How in the world is a guy who murdered his brother, was exiled for two years to a foreign king's home, going to come in and beat David? That makes no sense on paper. Well, it's about to happen. And this is how it's going to happen. He's physically beautiful. Now, the, the passage ends with Absalom manipulating Joab. We began with Joab manipulating David. Look how the passage ends. It ends with Absalom manipulating Joab, verses 28 to the end. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. 
Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let me be put to death, or let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Verse 28, again, continues this narrative of David's errors. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. David is detached. David is not involved in his family. David is not carrying out his responsibilities. David had one son rape a daughter, and what did he do? Nothing. Two years go by. Then David has one son murder another, and what does David do? Nothing. That guy comes back and is living essentially just under the wing of David, seemingly. And what does he do for two years? Doesn't even speak to his own son. This is just painting a, a sad picture of David. A sad picture of David. Praise God that's not the end for him. And so what does Absalom do? Well, this dude's bold. Keep in mind, Joab is a murderer. Joab, Joab does not hesitate to put the, the sword in a man's stomach. This is a man of blood if there ever was one. But since he's the king's son and he's been brought back, Joab's got a field, go burn it. Now, again, when, jo when, when Absalom had his brother murdered, that's what happened. Absalom didn't carry out the deed. He had his servants do it. Here, similarly, he has them burn a field. What a loser. This guy is a villain. Kills his brother, comes back to Jerusalem, burns a man's field. <laughs> but he gets Joab's attention. That's how he gets a meeting with the king. And again, this whole idea about David's clear responsibility to bring justice upon Absalom, to have him put to death, is in the background. And Absalom makes that clear at the end of verse 32. Now, now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. That's, that's what's hanging over this whole deal with David and Absalom. Now, now you look at that question. You've, you read about what Absalom does, and you answer that question, is there guilt in me? Well, yeah. Quite obviously there is. And uh, again, the dilemma, and, and we recognize, my goodness, what, a, what an anguishing for David to have the responsibility to bring justice on his own murderous son. But we're going to see what's going to happen because he fails to act. And it's going to cost a lot of people a lot of pain. There's going to be a lot of blood spilt in the next few chapters. So two, well, three, three final lessons 
First, sin brings distress, dilemmas, and anguish. This is a horrible circumstance we find David in. But it's self-inflicted. This is self-inflicted. It's because of David's sin. These, he is reaping the consequences of what he has sown. So sin brings distress, dilemmas, and anguish. So that, that, that is another thing always in the background here that we need to learn and be wary of. The, the consequences of our own sin. Secondly, particularly directed toward fathers and leaders. Men. Fathers and leaders need to have moral courage. This whole chapter paints David in a pathetic light. Really, 2 Samuel 13 and 14, he comes off looking really, really bad. Fathers need to have moral courage to deal with issues in their family. I'm not saying it's easy. And I like, I like the phrase moral courage. It's a phrase the Marine Corps likes to use. And moral courage is the idea of doing what's right, even when it's hard. Doing what's right and what you know to be true and righteous, even though there's going to be consequences for it. You do what's right even though it's hard, even though it's costly. And then there's courage to take the right action despite the doubts and fears. That's what courage does. Courage acts despite fear. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's, it's doing what is right in the presence of it. And that's what David fails to do in these chapters. And so we all have issues in our families. And it primarily comes to us, husbands and fathers, to deal with the hard issues in our families. To not be disengaged. That's the great error here of David. He's disengaged. He's detached. Praise God, we don't have to make decisions like he was struggling through and with. But for us, as fathers and, and men in leadership positions, we've got to take actions that accord with God's Word and exercise moral courage. We all deal with problems and issues in our families. I mean, it's not easy for any of us. We're all a bunch of sinners trying to live together. And there, there's no easy answers other than what God's Word says. We can't make people behave a certain way, but we can point them to what God says, and we can have the moral courage to tell especially our family, here's what God says, and you're wrong to do this. And furthermore, not only does the Scripture address what we should do, it addresses how we should do it. So yes, men, husbands, leaders, we take action with moral courage, but we do it with love. We do it with humility. We do it with kindness. We do it with grace. So not only do we take the action, deal with, and, and let's just, let's, sin, I mean, there's sin in all of our families. Deal with the sin as a, as a, as a husband, as a father with some, some courage to do what's right and try to lead our families in what's right. You do what's right, but also you do it in accord with all the virtues you see God call us to in Scripture. And then we trust him with the results, and this we pray. But don't you see David's failures here? Friends, life is short, 
and, and, we have, and it is fleeting. And we have limited windows of opportunity to take action of courage for righteousness' sake, and we must do it. Finally, what I think is really the main point of this text is, to, is a call, a, a picture, an image, with all this manipulation, all of David's distress, his passivity, his detachment. I think the, the, the overarching point here, in light of dealing with the consequences of his sin, is now don't fail to carry out your biblical responsibilities, which is exactly what David does at every turn. Don't fail to carry out your biblical responsibilities. Even when they're hard, and, and I, I can't imagine circumstances for us being as hard as what David is dealing with here. And, and you add to this. Think, think about David's circumstance. Think about what David's done. Has, is, has, has David killed a man to cover up his sin? Yes. And, and now he's being seemingly expected, or he knows. I think he knows. I think the text makes clear the issue is Absalom's death. But, but, but David, David put Uriah to death, murdered him, conspired against him to cover up his sin. How could he now put his own son to death? This is a, a crazy moral dilemma. Well, just finally, there's one, there's one thing here to point out. There's a major difference in David and Absalom, a major difference. Do you know what it is? It's how they respond to their sin. David is repentant. When David is confronted with his grievous, horrible sin, how does he respond? I've sinned against the Lord. And the response, the Lord has taken away your sin, therefore you shall not die. It's the issue there is David's death as well. David got mercy from God. Why did David receive mercy from God? Because he repented. He got grace and repented. That is not the case with Absalom. Absalom comes back to Jerusalem, burns a field, and says, I want to go into my father's presence, and if I'm guilty, let him kill me. I mean, you think about when the prodigal son came home. Did the prodigal son act like that? No. And what is the, the, the point of the prodigal son? There's, there's joy in heaven. Over one sinner, that repents. So friends, if, if there are abiding sins in your life now, you should repent tonight. You should turn from them. All of us have failures in our families. Um, there's something for us to regularly be repenting about. But then you know what? We need to stand and take a stand for the truth in the Word of God. And exercise some moral courage by the grace of God for the good of our families, for the good of our own soul, to not be like David in these chapters and fail to carry out our biblical responsibilities that the Scripture puts on us. Let's pray together. Lord, we need help with this. God, we, we, we don't want to fail you. We don't want to fail our families. We don't want to sin. God, we have all been negligent. Lord, we are sinners, we are weak, we are frail. We've all failed to do what you've commanded. We've all left undone, Lord, things we should have done. God, help us to have courage to be faithful and obey you, even when it's hard. 
God, help us not to be swayed by manipulation that falsely invokes your name, that uses flattery. God, I pray you'd protect our kids and help us to teach them and admonish them about those that would invoke your name and have evil designs and deceptive designs and desires. So God, we just pray you'd protect our children from that, that they might grow up trained in the righteousness of God, trained in your word to be faithful to you. Help us as a church, God, to train them. Help us, God, set them an example of godliness. Lord, especially help fathers and men to to have courage to obey you. Give us wisdom in how to address the challenging issues in our families. And God, most of all, give us courage to obey you and not be like David, passive and disengaged. But God, to say what we need to say from your word, according to your word, give us grace and kindness and humility and love as we seek to be men who learn from the errors of David that what was written here before us in times past is written for our instruction that we might not sin as they did. So God, help us to learn and help us to apply it to our life in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, let's stand together. Uh, The great hope of all of us sinners is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that that we're helpless like the, the hymn said, Before God, nothing we could do, nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we cling. And God in mercy sent his son Jesus to die for sinners. And he paid the penalty of our sin. He took the wrath of God upon him so that we could be counted righteous. Amazing. Sinners counted righteous. And we're counted righteous through trusting Jesus and him alone. So trust him. Call on the name of the Lord, depend on him, trust in Jesus for righteousness. And then we leave, justified sinners, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to live out his word and live out the kind of moral courage that keeps us from failing like David did.